Lord, we just love you so much that you gave us your word to study. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this section of scripture and see your great mercy toward your people and your great love toward us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 64. Um, in Isaiah 63, he was talking about God, God's people being forsaken and, and that they were overrun and asked God to protect them. And so Isaiah 64 is starting out with continuing that picture. Starting in verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow down at your presence. And when the melting fire burns, the fire causes waters to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did terrible things which we looked not for, you came down, and the mountains flowed down at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither have the eyes seen, O God, beside you, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. You meet him that rejoices and works righteousness. Those that remember you in your, your ways, behold, you are wroth, for we have sinned in, in those is continuance, and we have, and we shall be saved. But we are as all as unclean thing, and all our righteousness is of filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There is none that calls upon your name that stirs up himself to take hold of you. For you have hid your face from us, and you have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are clay, you are the potter, and we are the work of your hands. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech you, we are all your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you refrain yourselves from these, O Lord? Will you hold your peace Will and afflict us very sore? All right. I'm not sure we're going to make it all the way to the end of this chapter, but we're going to see. It's only 12 verses. starts out with, O that you would rent the heavens, that you would come down, and that the mountains might flow down in your presence. So he's begging God to show himself mightily. All right? God, would you rent, rent the heavens, literally tear the heavens. And in this particular case, we're not sure which heavens we're going to talk about, because in the Bible, we remember, we talk about three different heavens. We've got the atmospheric heaven, where the storms and the clouds and everything are in. We've got the universe which is heaven, and then we've got the heaven where God dwells. I don't believe that he's talking about the heaven. Might just be talking about the atmosphere. God, would you bring storms? Would you, would you really show yourself? And you know, this is something that they understood back there. God was in control of weather. And still is. It wasn't was, he is. <laughs> All right? And you know, I look around us and see the weather that's been going around and the earthquakes and the storms that have been going on and the increase in the intensity. And I really do believe that God's trying to get people's attention. He's trying to shake up people and say, are you paying attention? And in our day, men are too scientifically acknowledged. We, we, know how, we, know, we think we know how these are, even though they're not acting the way we think they should. And they're worse than we think they should be because... You know, we know weather, we know what's going on, and they're not what people expect. We're getting storms where storms don't usually happen. We're getting earthquakes where earthquakes never happen. We're seeing monstrous hurricanes and typhoons going on. Greater, you know, they keep going, these are the great biggest ones since we've had in a century. Well, every 10 years they say the same thing. So they should be saying the great biggest one in, in a decade. But you know, God is trying to shake people up and get people's attention. It's pretty amazing that the insurance company calls anything that nature does an act of God. And yet people in general don't call anything that's done by nature an act of God. All right? Um, but he says, would you rent the heavens and would you come down that the mountains might flow or, tr or quake, literally, at your presence? When we heard in, in uh, Moses' day when he went up to Mount Zion, God came upon the mountain, and the mountain quake. 
and the mountain thundered in lightning at God's presence. And the people, there was so much, so much going on that the people said, Moses, you stay up there. We don't even want to see what's going on. And they hid in their tents for a while because they did not want to be in the presence of God and see the mighty acts of God. You know, and this is something that is so amazing. How much of God's working do we miss because we're not looking for it? We write it all off. The small miracles that happen, the miracle of waking up every morning for us and starting another day, the miracle of making it through a day, I think if we really understood how close to danger we come on every single day, we'd probably really understand how much of a miracle it is. You know, how many accidents were blocked long before we even knew that they were going to happen? How much weather has been blocked before we knew that it was happening? You know, how many accidents? You know, sometimes people know about the accidents God's protected them from. Uh, listening to a story about, you know, gave, giving his testimony where he says the cars occupied the same space and didn't, didn't wreck. I've actually heard that, that story more than once, where God somehow changes the laws of physics so that he protects his people. What can God do? Anything he wants. I uh, heard the story of a missionary that drove up a road, and they got to the top of the hill, and they go, well, how'd you get here? Well, you came up that road. They go, you can't come up that road. They go, well, that's how we came. They came up in a fog bank, and when they came down the road, they saw that they couldn't have come up that road. The entire road had washed out two years before. And they'd driven up that road. What did God do? Angels carried the car over that, over that cliff. You know, what will God do to protect his people? What will he do miraculously? We don't know. Another story of a missionary going through jungles held by gorillas. Nobody bothered him. A year later, one of the gorillas came up to him and go, where did you get that army that was surrounding you? He goes, I didn't have anybody, it was just me. He goes, oh no, you had an entire army surrounding your car. Big guys with, with guns and stuff, we couldn't, we couldn't come near you. you know, what does God do? Anything he needs to do. And sometimes we'll never know those miracles until we get to heaven and God says, well, here's where I protected you. Here's where I protected you. Here's where I protected you. Sometimes we know them. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we think, oh boy, God, nothing's ever bad to happen to me. You know, I have a feeling that when God shows us what's been going on, we're going to see that we were much more danger than we ever thought we were. Because God comes down in power to protect his people. Verse 2 says, As when the melting fire burns, the fire causes waters to boil to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. Melting fire literally is a brush fire. Okay, the word for melting actually is brushwood burning. And we all know what those are like. Those are our brush fires that cause lots of damage and can get very hot. And, and unfortunately, they burn quickly. And he says, your fire, God, consumes quickly and can cause water to boil, to churn. God makes his presence known. When Pharaoh would not release God's people, God made his presence known in a mighty supernatural way with ten plagues and showed that he is God. When the children of Israel finally decided to obey and come into the promised land, God showed his might by letting them cross the flood, flooded river by stopping the river. I kind of feel sorry for those priests because they had to carry the Ark of the Covenant into the, they had to step into the ark, uh, to the flood waters and hope that Joshua was right that God was going to stop the waters. And if you know anything about a river at flood stage, you don't walk into a river at flood stage. And yet God said, they're going to walk into it, and you're going to see my might and my power. We see God stepping in over and over again throughout history to protect his people, to do mighty and great things. Samson being able to kill thousands of people in each battle by himself. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego protected in a fiery furnace. We saw Daniel being protected in a, in a lion's den. And people were, well, they weren't hungry. Yeah, well, they were sure hungry when, the, when his enemies were thrown in. You know, and that was only just a, few, just a short time after he was taken out. You know, those lions were hungry. God shut their mouth, just as Daniel said they did. 
Over and over, God has protected his people. And yet, at the same time, there's times when God says, blessed is your death in my sight. Isaiah, the very writer of this book, is going to die by being stuffed into a, uh, into a log and being sawn in half. You know, and he's saying, God, come and, come and protect. And he'd seen God protect him in many ways. And yet, he is going to meet a martyr's death before his life is over. We go through Fox's Book of Martyrs and look at millions of Christians who've been killed for their faith. There's times when God says, now it's time to die for me. But even in death, the martyr is known because they stay steadfast with God and, and lift God up and they, and they get to draw people through that. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things greatly. That's why I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Who can, who can protect you? Our God is able, but whether he does or whether he does not, we will serve the Lord. That needs to be our attitude. God is able to keep us from all trials. God is able to protect us. Will he? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. When he doesn't, we hold on to that and say, okay, God, it's your will. I'm going to go through hard times. I'm going to die. I'm going to, I'm going to come home. Dying is the best thing for us as Christians because we get to go home. No more pain, no more sorrow, and that's a great thing. Now, our family and friends have to suffer. <laughs> they hopefully will miss us. But, you know, God says, you're home. And eventually, if they're Christians, they will come home too. And here we see God being asked for, come and help us. And then he reminds God in verse 3, When you did terrible things which we looked not for, you came down, the mountain slowed down in your presence. <laughs> He's reminding God, God, you've done this. How many times in the scriptures do we see this? All through the book of Judges, God would call somebody, and their answer usually was, where's the God that delivered us? You know, where's the God that did the miracles of Mo you know, in the Red Sea that, that destroyed, destroyed Egypt? I've heard it from Christians. Where, where's the God who does that miracle, especially the lost world? Where's the God that does all these miracles? He's still on his throne. He's still doing miracles. He's still protecting. He still cares for. He is still there. Just as he told the people in the scriptures that questioned him, he goes, okay, let me show you what I'm going to do. And he would do great things for them. Gideon asked that question of God. Where's the God that you know, delivered? Where's the God we wrote about that fed our people for, with manna for 40 years? Where's the God that, that dried up the Red Sea and the, and, the, and, the river, and the Jordan? And God says, I'm right here. I'm going to do something big for you. It's an amazing thing sometimes when we challenge God and watch what he does. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. I mean, we look at these great people in the Bible or the people we think are great. If we really look at their story, they were just insignificant people raised up to do something big for God that God would do. And their life was turned upside down and made uncomfortable. Gideon was told, go tear down the, temp the, the idol of Tabal in your, in your town. He did it in the middle of the night because he was so afraid of anybody seeing him doing it, and he still knew who did it. And his father rescued him from being killed. Then he's told to build an army. Terrified. He's just a lowly farmer, and God's telling him to do all these things. And then God gives him the really good news, you've got too big an army. I mean, it's one-sixth of the size of the army he's going up, and, he's going, and God says, you've got too many people. Gets down to 300 men to fight over 100, 120,000 people. Yeah, we would be terrified. Samson, called by God to go to battle. God kept coming on him, and he'd battle hundreds of people and kill hundreds of people by himself. And he wasn't even a good guy. He disobeyed God at every turn. You know, he was a Nazarite and he touched dead, um, he touched dead things, he, ate, he drank wine, he, he did everything except cut his hair. And if he could do it wrong, he did it wrong. And yet God used him. Jonah runs away from God. <laughs> when God calls him. We look at these people. You know, Jeremiah tells God after a while, God, I'm not going to serve you anymore because I'm tired of being thrown into prisons and being beat. And yet he turned around and started speaking for God anyway. When we are weak and have trouble following God, we are in good company. 
because we are with all the saints in the Bible when we look at them. You know, there's not very many people in the Bible that didn't have troubles with sin. We can name them off real quick. Joshua, uh, Joseph, Daniel, and Jesus. All the others had trouble and had weaknesses and fell flat on their faces. And I'm sure the other ones fell on their face other than Jesus on various times, but it's not recorded. Why? God wants us to know that we are like anybody else. Anybody in the Bible, we are just like them in our weaknesses. We are frail. We have nothing to offer God. And if we think we have something to offer God, God's not going to use us in our strength. Now, the very interesting thing is even at the beginning of the church, we have Peter, a fisherman, used to dealing with Gentiles in, his, in the business world, gets to go teach Jews. Paul, a rabbi, in the same, in a Pharisee of Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, and God sends him to go teach the Gentiles. Yeah, where they're not going to care about what he knows about the Old Testament. Yeah, and God does this to us over and over. He takes what we're strong in and says, I don't care about what you're strong in, and I'm going to take your weakness. And this is so beautiful. Every time we serve God and we realize, God, I'm doing what I never believed I could do. God, I never thought I could do, what, you know, fill in what God's asking you to do. Teach, sing, you know, serve, you know, be a Christian in the first place. <laughs> and God, you, you have used me. And this is what this whole rest of this chapter is going to be about. Not having anything to offer God. Verse 4, For since the beginning of the world, Men have not heard, nor perceived by ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside you, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. This is a beautiful statement. We do not know what God has prepared. Even if we think we know what God has prepared for us, we really don't know. Noah was called to build a big boat. He had no idea what he was in for. He had no idea what rain was. He had no idea what it was, that he was going to float on the, on the new waters for over a year, taking care of these animals and starting a new world with just him and his family. You know, we have Cain and Abel. Abel offers a perfect sacrifice to God of, of blood. His brother offers the fruits of his labors and is rejected, and Cain, gets, and Cain kills Abel. Abel does what's right and is killed. And you know, it's so interesting because that's the last really we hear of him. He's used as an example of how to offer, but we don't hear anything else about, about Abel. We don't know what kind of man he was other than he was willing to offer God the right sacrifice and he was called righteous. You know, all through the scriptures, we see Abraham making all kinds of mistakes. Twice he tells kings that his, that his wife is his sister. It was only half a lie. She was his half-sister, but she was also his bride and not available to them. And they would take him, and then God would judge them. You know, felt sorry for the kings. They honestly took her thinking that they were doing right, and God judged them. And in one of them, he said, you're a dead man. And the guy goes, hey, he told me he was his sister, not his wife. And goes, you give her back. You know, he... The righteous can sometimes cause problems to the unrighteous if we're not right, if we don't obey. There are people who are going to be the reason that people look and reject Jesus. Because they look at a Christian and go, well, if that's a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And we all have had that thrown in our face. If you witness to it often enough, long enough to somebody, you're going to hear somebody go, well, I know so-and-so, they say they're a Christian, and they're, they're worse than I am. Well, I'm really sorry that they're not leaving for God, but that's beside the point. You need to know what you're going to do. And yet, it happens over and over that people are bad examples and drag the name of Christ through the mud before the lost world. Our job is to live for God as best we can. And we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We're going to make mistakes. And this is what it comes down to. And it says, from the beginning, nobody's, nobody sought God. Nobody has really sought God to see what does this mean? Earlier he said that my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your, your ways. God is so much bigger, smarter, more knowledgeable than us that no matter what we think we know about God, we don't know God. 
We don't know anything about his ways. We don't know anything about him, really. And this is, even for those of us who are his children, and we get to really know him. Let's say we spend 60, 80 years walking with him, and we get to know him better than a lot. We still don't know God completely. And I have watched in my lifetime and in other white people's lifetime, every time we think we know God and we put him in a box, he steps out of the box and says, I'm not going to have you tell me what I'm going to do. My ways are not your ways. You know, God, when we do this, and this is what Job did and his, and his friends, if you obey God, you will be blessed. No if, ands, or buts. That was their belief. It is the prosperity gospel of today. Give God money, and he is guaranteed that he must give you money back in return for the money you give him. Give him praise, and he must bless you. And God says, I don't have to do anything. I'm sovereign. Will he bless us in the long run? Yes. Now, that blessing may not come until heaven, but he will bless us, and usually he will bless us in this lifetime just not usually the way we want to be blessed. He goes, here, I'm going to make life comfortable for you. I'm going to give you all this stuff and, and treat you. But not necessarily the way we want it done, and he's not going to be manipulated. And he's not a great big sugar daddy that just every time we ask him, for oh, here you go, yep, you can have it, you can have it. Because he knows that if he gives us everything we want, we'll be spoiled, and we won't follow him anyway. He, does, he wants us to need to call on him. Give us this day our daily bread is the prayer that Jesus gave. God wants us to ask him daily for our needs. Daily for what it is he wants us to do. Daily for new manna to come our way and new blessings and new mercies every day. And we see this. Because Isaiah saying, no one has known you. Known you. Verse 5 says, you meet him they rejoice and works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you are angry and we have sinned. In those in, con in continuance and we shall be saved. So he says, God, you come to those who rejoice in you. You come in those that are walking in righteousness. But it says also, you're angry with sin or literally iniquity. And iniquity is a very strong word. When God talks about iniquity, he's talking about perverseness, depravity, guilt. And you know, that's stronger than we, than we want to think of. And when we think of sin, you know, we like to think of it, oh, I made a mistake. That is not how God looks at it. He says it is perverse and depraved something that is something we should not even want to have anything to do with. And yet, we as human beings, we grade sin. Now, we go, this is a little sin. This isn't too bad. If you're doing this sin, you're generally okay. God's going, but you get up here and do these sins? Oh, these are terrible sins. And God is saying, all of it is perverse. We need to understand God's attitude towards sin in a stronger way than we do. It will, number one, keep us away from much of the sin that we allow into our lives. But we play around with sin so much. We watch television. We read books. We, we participate in conversations that are right on the edge or over the edge of acceptability and think we're okay. Because I didn't do anything. I just talked about it. I just watched it. God, I just watched 12 murders and... And, and 12 adulterous affairs and, you know, and a whole bunch of uh, incest and, and fornication, no problem. I can fill my mind with whatever and it's not going to bother me. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of our heart, we speak and act. And so the thing is, if we keep filling our mind with all the garbage, eventually it's going to come out. And we need to be aware of that. And God says, You're, you guys are are full of wickedness. You deserve to be punished. And this is what we have to understand. What do we deserve from God? Punishment. I've talked to, especially non-Christians, but every once in a while a Christian do, I just want what I deserve from God. All right, well, then we'll, we'll, we'll pray that God gives you what you deserve and we'll go, we'll go to your funeral tomorrow. Because that, if you get what you deserve from God, that's what you deserve. I want God's grace and mercy. I don't want what I deserve. 
Because overall, by the world standards, I'm a pretty good guy most of the time. But by God's standards, I'm a perverse, evil, wicked person. Because I have just as many problems as everybody else with my mouth and my thoughts and everything else. And God says, you're evil. You deserve my anger. Verse 6 goes, but, and it says God will save us, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. This is that beautiful verse that we need to really remember. God says our righteousness is as filthy rags. The best that we can do, God says, is a bunch of rags. And this is what's going to happen when people stand at the white throne judgment, which, again, the only ones who stand at the white throne judgment are those who have rejected Jesus Christ. They're not going to stand before God in their sin. They're going to stand before God in their righteousness and be clothed in rag, rag, uh, stinky rags. And they're going to be talking to God and go say, God, look at all the good things I do as they look down at themselves and see tattered, stinking rags as they're standing before the king of the universe. And if you can't really understand that, think if you had an opportunity to meet with the governor or the president of the United States. How would you get dressed? And I don't care if you like them or don't like them, but you're not going to go, okay, where's the, where's the stinkiest holy jeans that I can find in my ripped up t-shirt? You're going to go, I'm going to get dressed up. Probably find a suit or a tie or a nice dress. You know, you're going to go and because you're going before somebody that we consider important. People are going to stand at the white throne judgment before the king of the universe in filthy rags, thinking as they get there that they had something to show off. Because we hear it all the time. Well, I'm a pretty good person. God will, God will, God will understand. God will accept. Yeah, God's going to fully understand and accept that you are somebody that's in filthy rags in front of him and not dressed right. We as Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, have accepted Jesus Christ, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and we stand before him and he says, oh, this is my beautiful child dressed in perfect righteousness, perfect clothes. He provides the garments for us. This is the beauty of God. He died for us because we couldn't pay for the sin ourselves. He holds out the gift to us so that we can accept him. And when we do, he clothes us in his righteousness and then adopts us into his family and says, you have everything that the royal family has to offer. And we come to him and say, God, I have nothing to give you. And he says, you're absolutely right. You don't. You have nothing to give me. Even after we're saved, we don't have anything to give him. And this is the problem I see with so many Christians. They get saved and somehow they get their life pretty much in order and they think that all of a sudden they have something to offer God. They have a bunch of filthy rags to offer him and don't even realize it. This type of thinking will keep us humble. I am where I am by God's mercy and grace. I can stand before him. I can give my petition to him. I will enter heaven because of his mercy and grace. I can't earn my salvation. I can't keep my salvation. It's all a gift that he puts on me and says, I'm responsible for keeping you. And keep us he does. Even when we are dumb and stupid and keep falling on our face, he says, okay, here you are, wiping you off, bringing you back up. Would you, maybe you might want to stop falling, but I'm going to keep picking you up. And the good news is when we fall, David tells us we fall into God's hands. We don't even get to fall very far, and he catches us and puts us back up and puts us back up and puts us back up. The, the righteous man falls seven times a day and gets back up. The wicked falls once and doesn't get back up. They decide to stay wallowing in the mud. Now, God is there to help us stand back up. He just says, oh, oh you fell. Let me pick you back up. Just as we do with our kids when they're learning to walk. Oh, you fell. Let me help you back up. You okay? We give them a hug and we get them back up and, and walking again. 
God is just like that. Why? Because he knows that we're little children. We are little children, especially compared to him. And he knows that we have failed. He knows that we can't stand. He knows that just a breath from his, from his nostril would knock us over and kill us. He knows that we can't stand up to anything, and yet he lovingly holds us, lovingly embraces us, and drags us where he wants us to be. The beauty of the grace of God. Oh, the magnificent, amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. All because of God. God holds out a gift and says, I have a gift for you. And when people fail, sometimes if they really know God, they go and hide in pity because they fail, because they somehow think that they have to do something. Yeah. And this is the sad thing. So many people get in this mindset of, you know, I've got to do what's right for God. If I don't do what's right, he's not going to love me anymore, and he's going to throw me aside. No. God loved us enough to die for us while we were still sinners. He loved us enough to give us a gift while we were still sinners headed for hell. He clothes us, he makes us righteous, and he walks with us. He puts the Holy Spirit into us to guide us. Now, most of us don't listen to the Holy Spirit very well, but the Holy Spirit is right there saying, turn this way. And when we go the wrong way, he's still with us, and when we fall flat on our face, he picks us up and says, now let's get back over on the right road and get going again. This is the beauty when we read a book like The Pilgrim's Progress where a Christian keeps believing the path and God keeps bringing them back. And it does the very thing we know. There's chastisement. When I disobey, God is going to chastise. He's going to correct. And it hurts to be corrected. And there's pain when we fall flat on our face and, and go through the trials. But God lifts us up and says, okay, you've had your pain. You, we, we, we've uh, anointed the, the uh, cuts, we put some clean you know, antiseptic on it, we bandage it up, let's get back on the road. And we get back on the road and follow him. Why? Because we have nothing to offer him ever. And we have to understand that nothing I have is going to be of value to God. He goes, everything we have is filthy rags and we all are like the leaf that fades. Now, here in this area, we don't really understand leaves that fade. But if you're ever in any place where you actually have autumn, you see the green leaves change colors. And then they keep fading and, fading and they lose their colors and then they eventually fall off the tree. This is what Isaiah is telling us. All right, we're all a bunch of filthy rags and we're just like the trees that are, the, the trees that are going to lose their leaves. And we're not even the tree, we're the leaf on the tree. The tree is gonna survive until something really bad happens. But the tree survives each, each winter and the leaves fall away. We're the leaves. We come and go. And God, God knows that our life is a vapor. In Psalms we're told, it is, we are like the grass that fades away. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how well you take care of your yard, eventually it's going to dry, dry up and, and blow away or die. Even if, even if the rest of the yard stays good, certain, certain leaves are eventually going to die and, and be, be taken away. And God says, you're all just that. You're all just a vapor in his sight. And from God's perspective, we are just a vapor. We get to live, oh, let's, say, let's, let's make it really long. We get to live 200 years. From God's perspective, he says, you just started your life. Because he's looking out over the entire 6,000 years of this world and then he goes eternity past beyond that. So he looks at even 6,000 years and says, oh, it was just a, just a breath, a blink of the eye. We look at it because of our humanity and say, wow, that's a long time. God, I lived a long time for you. And God says, yeah, you just, you just got started. You barely had time to make any imprint on the world. And for most of us, most of us are going to be lucky to remember one generation past our life. You know, and if we get known two, three, four generations past our life, we did something big. And if we get known for a millennia or so, we did something really big that God made us known for, but still nobody's really going to know much about us. Even the people we know from history, what do we know about them? You know, unless you study them intimately, 
We all know a few stories about George Washington, a few stories about Je uh, Jefferson, a few stories about Abraham, you know, but we don't really know a lot about them because they died a long time ago and their story has died with them for the most part. Like I say, if you study them, you'll get to know them better, but you still don't know everything about them. For most of us, when we die, our immediate family is going to remember they'll share some of the stories. Our grandkids might remember some stories. But for most of us, how many stories do we know of our great-grandparents? And if we know anything about them, how about our great-great-grandparents? Yeah, I know nothing about them except some of their names. Other than that, I don't know anything about them. So we look at this and say, life is short. We need to put our treasures in heaven so that God will honor what it is, uh, and give us blessings from treasures stored away in heaven. Verse 7 says, And there is none that calls upon your name, that stirs up himself to take hold of you, that you have hid your, for you have hid your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. This is that verse that we have trouble with. This is the verse that we've been studying the other day in the scriptures where God chooses. He predestines. No one comes to God without him giving them the desire. Now this is very controversial because God says, Whosoever shall call upon my name shall be saved. And yet over and over in the scripture he says, I am the one that calls. I am the one that gives you the grace. I am the one that gives you the desire to follow. How those two come together, we don't know. It's beyond our limited cranial abilities to be able to join those two together. The one thing I can tell you, God has no problem with it. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, stronger and more. He looks at it and says, see, this, this piece is simple, simple, simple case. Have you ever played with some of those puzzles that when you take one piece out of the puzzle, the whole thing falls apart? And then you don't know how to put the thing back together? <laughs> yeah, because it was just one piece holding the whole thing, thing, thing together? That's how God looks at the puzzle that we look at. We go, God, we don't understand this. How can people, how can it be whosoever will, and yet you are in full control? And God says, well, it's right here. Here's the key. If we understood the key, which is beyond us, we'd understand the whole principle. And yet we look at it and say, God, we just don't understand. God, I don't understand how you can be in charge and, and we can have free will. God, I don't understand how you can be three, three and one and you're, and you're all three separate individuals and yet you're one, one combined unit that can't be broken apart. God, I don't understand. And God says, of course you don't. You have too limited a brain power. And you know the good news for us? The world looks at us and says, you guys are fools for believing something that you can't understand. I look at him and say, if I could understand everything there was to know about God, my God is too small. Okay, if I knew and could understand everything about God, then I would be God. And thankfully, I'm not. God is so much beyond what I can understand and know. I can get to know him more by reading his word. I get to know him better by reading his word, but I will never completely know God. And I am of the personal opinion that we will never completely know God even in all of eternity. Because for all of eternity, he's going to be bigger, stronger, mightier than we are. We are the created being, and we are not going to be knowing everything that he knows. Chapter 64. Ah, okay. Ah, well, yeah, we, that was a long time ago. So he says, there's none that calls on you. He says, in, you have hid your face from us. You have consumed us or caused us to melt because of our iniquities. Again, that word for sin, depravity, the, the perversity that we have. And he goes, we, because of our sin, do not turn to God. And this is true. One of the things that we even find in our own lives when we sin, especially when we do a big sin or enough sins in a row, what's the last thing we want to do? Come before a holy God. We don't want to come to God. We don't want to get in the Word. We don't want to go to church because we feel guilty 
and we don't understand the mercy of God. We don't understand that God has already known that we were going to sin and saying, if you would just come and ask for forgiveness, I will forgive. This is what must be done. And we have to fully understand that God loves us enough to keep forgiving us. And we go, God, I've made the same mistake eight times today and, and 20 times yesterday and, and three times the day before and 100 the day before, and God says, I still forgive you. Why? Because Jesus paid all the sin debt on the cross. We don't understand. We don't fully understand what he did on the cross. Even when we get saved, we don't fully understand what he did on the cross. He took all sin. Every sin that has ever been committed in this world and will still be committed was taken upon the cross so that God could forgive us. We need to really grab hold of that. We don't surprise God when we sin. He is not up in heaven saying, oh my goodness, they sinned. I didn't know that was coming. Now, and not only that, it's already been put on Jesus and he still doesn't even see the sin. Okay, there's consequences for our sin. Don't get me wrong. God does not see the sin because it's under the blood, but there's still consequences because he has put the law of sowing and reaping. When we do wrong, we will reap the results of doing wrong. And it's not because God's standing up there saying, okay, we're going to make sure you get punished for that. It's because he said, when you do wrong, you, you get punished. Your, your bad things are going to happen. If we do right, good things generally happen. Now, he can step in and do, do changes. He can step in and say, okay, you're not going to suffer as bad as, I, as you should. Or, as in the case of Job, Job, you're going to suffer for a while even though you don't deserve it. Because Satan is, is challenging me. And you get to be the pawn in this, in, this, uh, in this group. So God can step in and make changes. But sin is covered. And God says, I love you. When we sin, God is standing there saying, I love you. Come to my arms. Yes, you had to be disciplined. Yes, you had to go through hard times. But come, get the hug. Get the love afterwards. And a good parent will do this with their child. They'll spank their child, they'll discipline their child, and then they'll give that child love and attention, saying, you're still loved. You needed to be disciplined, you needed to be punished for what you did, but I still love you. And sometimes that's hard to keep those two separate, especially if your child is mischievous and always in trouble. Sometimes it's hard to keep loving them. You know, but our job as a parent is to keep loving them, and just ask for God's strength to love them. And sometimes it may mean that we just say, God, they're in your hands. I had one of my children that I did that. God, they're in your hands. I'm, they're not listening to me anymore. They're yours. And I even told him that. And later on, he, you know, about 12 years later, he still remembered. And he goes, you scared the daylights out of me when you said you'd put me in God's hands to take care of. To take care of. You know, and there may come that time when we just say, as a parent, I can't go any further. Now, that didn't mean I never disciplined, never talked to him, but it's like, okay, God, you're, everything is in your hands. You do what you need to do to win his heart. And then we stand back and watch what God does. And that's hard. We as parents don't like to see what God will do to, to our kids to bring them to him. You know, because sometimes he has to smash them to get their heart turned to him. All my kids were given to God, dedicated to God. I said, God, they're yours. And we had to settle a ceremony in the church, praying, God, these are your kids. Church, help raise these kids. They were all given to God. Now, are all of them following God the way I'd like? No. But they're moving in the right direction for the most part. We stand before God, and we have nothing to give him. It's all his mercy, all his grace. We have nothing at all to offer him no matter how long we've been walking with him, no matter what we do for him. The pastor who stands up every Sunday and, and all through the week preaching and teaching, discipling, has nothing better to offer God than anybody else in the church. The evangelist winning millions of people every year has nothing more to offer God than anybody else that is saved that day at his, at his, at his uh, revival. 
we have nothing. And the more we realize that I have nothing to give him, the more I depend on him. I can do all things through Christ Jesus. Without Christ, I can do nothing. And I have to really begin to understand that verse. I don't have anything to offer God. I have nothing that, that will please him. But with him, working through me, I can do all things. And this is important for us to be able to understand and see. After he says that you've consumed us and because of our iniquities, he says, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are cl the clay, you are the potter, we are the work of your hand. Now this is kind of interesting because the Jews did not understand and call God Father. Yet here's Isaiah saying, you are our Father. Isaiah is not the only one that ever said that in the Old Testament. Jesus got in trouble with the Pharisees because he called on God and said, our Father who art in heaven. And that's how he taught us to pray. Because God is has bought us. He is our Father. The church is the bride of Christ, which means the that God the Father is our Father-in-law. He loves us that much, and he is a good Father-in-law who loves his daughter-in-law. You know, he loves us and calls us his child just as much as he loves Jesus. And that is hard to believe because he loved Jesus intimately. And he loves the church because he died, Jesus died for us. There's a great price, and, we'll, and we've talked about this. The Father and the Holy Spirit paid a price for our salvation. Jesus is the one that died on the cross, but when he became sin, they turned their back on Jesus. They ripped him apart from them and turned their back on him because he became sin. Just as when Adam and Eve sinned and their spirit died and they were torn apart, and everybody born since that period of time is born spiritually dead. Everybody. Why was Jesus not born spiritually dead? Because he didn't have a human father. The seed of sin goes from father to child. Then Jesus had a human mother and God was his father. So he did not get a sin nature. So he did not have the problem that we have trying to live a perfect life. He was tempted. Satan put some big temptations in his path. And you know, we're not going to talk about all those temptations, but you know, just the big one. Hey, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and said, these will all be yours if you just bow down. What was he offering him? You can have the whole world without having to go to the cross. We can save the death on the cross if you'll just bow down to me. Now, Jesus was smart. and realized it was a false promise. But he knew that the world was his already. All he had to do was go to the cross. And he was taking back the world. But it would be great pain. There would be great separation. And we don't understand what the cost of that separation between him and the Father was. We think about the pain, the physical pain, Nails through his wrists, nails through his feet, crown of thorns, scourged. You know, and it said that he didn't even look like a man. He had been so pounded and beat. It was just a bloody lump of flesh hanging on a cross. And then the father turned his back on him. And that is when the pain really started. And we don't understand what it means to be separated from God. We get a glimpse of it. When we get to really fall in love with God and we turn our back on him, we get a small glimpse of the pain that they went through. And when I say small, I mean uh, splintering your finger small as opposed to you know, a spear being driven through you type deal. You know, we get a small taste of it. Jesus took three hours of pain when he took sin upon himself. That was when he was at the most dangerous point in, of our salvation because he it was separated from the Father who was his strength. Now, he's still God. He has strength within himself, but he had no more help with the Father because every morning Jesus got up early in the morning and went to the Father and prayed and got into fellowship with the Father. 
giving us the example of what we should be doing. Getting up early every morning and getting in fellowship with the Father for our day. Getting into the Word, getting to know Him. And all this came down because of what He did. And He says, God, we are clay. You are the potter. Jeremiah told us that he went to the potter's house and watched the potter make this beautiful vase and they found a flaw in it. And what did he do? Crushed it back down and restarted. Point is, God can do with us as he wants because we are the clay. He wants to make us into a bowl, we're made of bowl. He wants to make us a plate, we're a plate. If he wants to make us into a pitcher, we're a pitcher. If he wants to make us into an ornate, beautiful vase that's going to be used for the best of things, will be used for the best of things. If he makes us into a chamber pot, <laughs> then that's what we are. He gets to decide how we're going to be used. And sometimes we feel like we're all chamber pots the way, way we go through this world. God, I am sure being abused here. I am not, I am not the fine china sitting up in the, in, the china, in the china cabinet. But you know, that's probably a good thing. Because people putting things in the china cabinet never use those plates more often. My mom has a, place, a set of china that has been up there for probably 40 years and has probably been used a dozen times in 40 years. And usually it's Thanksgiving when it gets used, if it gets used then. And lately we don't even use it for Thanksgiving, we use paper plates. So that china sits in the cabinet, looks pretty, hasn't been chipped very much because it never gets used. Do we really want to be that vessel for God that sits in, a, sits in a showcase, or do we want to be the vessel that gets used? Now, as much as it would not be nice to be the chamber pot, the chamber pot gets used every day. Sometimes many times a day. And God says, I have got a purpose for you. And I'm not trying to be funny with this. I'm just trying to be serious. You know, are we looking to be something that is beautiful, never used, or are we going to be God? I want to be the, the, the plate that is used every single, at every single meal. I want to be the cup that gets used every time somebody wants, wants a drink of water. God is the potter. He will do with us as he wants to, which means that we can't go, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Because God is the potter. He is sovereign. My job is to say, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what. We learn to rejoice and be thankful in all situations. We learn to go, God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, I love you and are called according to your purpose. God, I love you. I'm called by your purpose, so I'm going to trust that something good is going to come. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it could be because I feel like I've been thrown on the floor and broken into a million pieces and they're jumping all over the pieces. But God, you've got something good that's going to come out of it. And we hold on to that truth for everything we have and watch God. We stay thankful. You know, I don't know how many of us know what it's like to be around somebody who's always complaining. Always complaining. Nothing is ever right. They are hard to be around. There are so many Christians that are that way toward God. God, you're just not doing what I think you should do. You haven't blessed me the way I think you should. I don't have the nice, nice home on the hillside. I don't have three cars in the garage so that when, when one breaks down, and they shouldn't break down because they're all good cars, but when one breaks down, I don't have the backup car, God. I'm not, I'm not working a job where I have all the influence in the world. You know, God, nobody's ever going to know me when, when I die. And God says, I have a plan. Quit complaining. And God, I can almost picture him saying, would you just stop complaining once in a while? I have a plan for you. And, you know, and we all complain at some point in time, and I know we do. Hopefully we're more joyful, more thankful than not. But I know people who are always complaining. Nothing is ever right. They're exhausting. They're exhausting to have those people that nothing is ever right. Nothing is good enough. The whole world's falling down. And it's bad enough when they're a Christian, non-Christian. But when a Christian does that, it's even sadder because they should know God has a plan. The non-Christian, well, I understand. If you don't have good life on, on, this, on this world, you're in trouble because hell's, hell's going to be a terrible place to be. You know, and the sad thing is, for the world, this is as close to heaven as they get. And this is nowhere close to heaven. For us, this is as close to hell as we're going to get. And it's nowhere near hell. But for us, this is as close to it as we're going to get. 
but we need to just focus on God. God, you've got a plan. Romans 8.28 is my verse. When things are going bad, I like to just grab a knot. I'm at the bottom of the rope, and I just tie a knot on the bottom of the rope, tie that verse into it, and sit on it. And say, God, I'm just sitting here waiting for the good. And God, I don't understand it. I don't see it. I don't know how this is going to be good, but I am just going to hold on right here at the end of this rope on the promise that you've given me because you're in charge. Now, does that mean I never complain? No, unfortunately, sometimes I complain, but I'm still holding on to that verse saying, God, you've got a plan. To know that God is in charge can give us a better life. When everything seems to be going bad, it's God, you've got a plan. I don't understand it. I'm walking through the shadow of the valley of death right now, but I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You, know, you comfort me. Your rod and your staff comforts me. Do we hold on to these verses when we're in the middle of the trials? The more of his word we have in our, in our hearts, the more we trust him, the easier it is to turn to him and say, God, don't know what's going on. It sure is dark in this valley. The wild animals sure are screaming all around me. It sounds like I'm going to get chewed up at any moment. But you are with me. You are protecting me, and you have a plan. And God, even if the wild animals chew me up, I get to go see you. Thank you. Just make it quick. Yeah, and this is where we're at. He's, he is the potter. We are the clay. Verse 9 says, Be not angry very much. Sore means very much. O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech you. We are your people. And this is our prayer to God. God, forgive. Forgive me. Quit don't be angry with me for so long. Forgive me because, why? We are your people. Uh, very much, exceeding. Don't be, don't be angry, exceeding. Old English word. And he goes, we are your people. And again, he goes back to the fact that we have nothing. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is desolate. Yeah, and Isaiah is saying this, and they're not quite desolate yet, but this is a prophecy that they're going to be. And this is a picture of the fact that we have nothing to give God. The Jews, as long as they could go to Jerusalem and the temple, could give sacrifice. And that's what they did. Jerusalem. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to go to the temple, and we're going to offer sacrifice. Very sad that they did not know that God was everywhere. When Jesus met the woman of Samaria... She goes, our people worship on this hill. The Jews tell us we have to worship in Jerusalem. And what was Jesus? There's coming a day when you will worship in spirit and neither place will be of importance. He already knew that that was the case. All he had to do was go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who made altars all over the place. Moses had made altars for worship God. We could worship God anywhere that he is. And the fact is, he is everywhere. The Jews had this picture that God lived in his temple. And you could not worship him without going to the temple. How sad to take the omnipresent God and say he is only present in this one little 200 foot by 200 foot building. Or even 400 foot, I can't remember the exact, but very small building. This is the only place you can go to meet God because he is stuck in that building. But you know how many of us do the same thing? We get sin and we're going, God, I can't go anywhere near your people. I can't go anywhere near the church because you're there. Uh, well, he's also right with you. In your sin, he's right there with you, especially if you're his child. But he's still with you even if you're not. David said, if I go to the pit of hell, behold, you are there. If I go to the highest height, you are there. Wherever I'm at, you're there. God will be present in hell for all of eternity, but not as a comfort. His righteousness and his holiness would be there, making people guilty for all of eternity. And we know what it's like to have God present in our life when we're living in sin. And how miserable we feel until we repent. Those in hell can't repent. They're going to stay guilty for eternity. They rejected Jesus Christ and are paying for their sins for eternity. 
and cannot escape the guilty conscience, cannot escape the, the fact that they are there because they chose to be there. And this is the key. We choose heaven or hell, and we will spend eternity under that decision. It says in verse 11, Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praise you is burnt up with fire and our pleasant things are laid waste. Again, talking about the cities being destroyed. And they were going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be flattened. The temple is going to be taken apart brick by brick so they could get all the gold out of it. The wall is going to be taken down. The city houses are going to be taken down and flattened. And yet, God says, this is my city. I'm going to rebuild it. And later on, he says, Ezra and Nehemiah to go rebuild the city. And they rebuild the city from scratch. And then the Romans destroy the city. <laughs> Again, taking it down brick by brick. Very little of the original city still stands. And God says, I'm going to rebuild the city. And he rebuilds the city. And then when he destroys everything, the new Jerusalem will come down, which will be us and our, our home. And then verse 12, Will you refrain yourself for these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very exceedingly? The, the question is, God, will you hold back your judgment? For his people, he will hold back his judgment. Why? Because he poured out all his judgments upon Jesus. We don't really fully understand, but all of God's judgment when it tells us in the scriptures that Jesus was the propitiation for our sin, that's a very big word, and it simply means that all of God's anger for sin was poured on Jesus. Not part of, not most of, not the majority of, all of his anger towards sin was poured out on Jesus, which allows him to be merciful and gracious to us sinners and say I love you because my, your sin has been paid for then he takes our sin and, he, sin and as David tells us in the scriptures God separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west the east and the west never meet it's infinitely separated from us God does not acknowledge our sin Again, we have consequences for our sin because the laws of sowing and reaping exist. But God is saying, your sin is paid for. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? And this is very important for us to understand. What will we do for Jesus? Those in this room, mostly from the testimonies and the way you live, have accepted Jesus. He's your Lord and Savior. We have accepted Christ. We will be accepted into the kingdom of heaven and get all the blessings of being a child of God. Now, what rewards are? We don't know what rewards are in heaven. There are rewards, but, you know, we have to understand we're saved by grace. We have an, a room in heaven that's decorated by Jesus for us because of his grace. We have eternal life because of his grace. We have all the blessings of God because of his grace. What more can we want? I don't know. God, God promises us some blessings on top of that. We have all spiritual blessings, and yet he's got more blessings for us. Now, I don't know how you get bigger than all, but he's got more. He's got rewards. He's got all these other blessings for us based upon what we allowed him to do for us, through us. What all that means, I don't know. But he says, you are precious. He calls us his darling bride. You know, can't remember the verse in it, but he calls us darling. You know, special. He loves us so special that he can't wait to, to get hold of us and keep us. He loves us so much, he's always watching us because of his great love for us. You know, and that, you know, for some people that scares them. God's always watching them. But I heard a pastor, and it really made sense to me when I heard him saying, I don't remember how long ago, but he said, God loves us so much he can't take his eyes off us. Just as that 
that boyfriend and girlfriend who just can't, whenever they see each other, cannot take their eyes off them because they're so much in love. That's Jesus' love for us. There, 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 there she is. That's my bride over there. Can't wait to our wedding day. That's my, that's my fiance. That's my bride. Just I love her more every day. She's beautiful without spot. Perfect. We don't understand that, but that's how he sees us. This perfect bride that he just can't wait to have the marriage supper of the Lamb come. It's coming soon. Coming soon when he's going to take his, take his bride out of this world and say, this is my bride. I bought her. He paid a very heavy dowry for us. He died on the cross for us. And he bought us so that we would be his and loves us to just such great an extent. And the more we understand who we are, the more we can understand how much God loves us. When we really truly understand that we have nothing to give him, it really puts it in perspective that he is everything. And he's got great gifts for us because he loves us. And all we do is submit ourselves to him and surrender to him and let him work through us. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to learn to submit to you and to honor you. Lord, help us to understand in our own strength we are nothing, but in you we have everything. Help us as we go forward in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.